rather busy. Now he's going to move like right along to McGregor. That's his whole life. You know. All right, Richard. So there's obviously a lot to talk about with these two episodes of The X-Files, DPO and Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. But I think the thing that I, I, I want to start out with is the fact that I really do think that these two episodes feel like a more mm. mature and confident version of the show that we've been watching for the past two seasons. Well, again, The X-Files is in some way two shows I'm finding. It's this myth arc kind of thing, and it's these Monster of the Week stories. And, I mean, this this season so far, the myth arc stuff, I this is the tone of The X-Files as far as all of that, as far as that storytelling uh, I get the sense that our major players are in place at this point. Obviously, there will be more characters revealed, but I think they've kind of figured out what the conspiracy stories are looking like, and this is showing they're figuring out what the monster of the week. I mean, there, you're right. There is a very – it's not you – know, season season one was very good, and season two ooh, I think was better, but this is the – they finally found their voice. You know, the, the, this is the – now now they're getting the hit singles finally you know they i think you get the sense they're moving from the tiny underground club act and this is the point where like a lot of people are like oh this is really good yeah cuz I, I i think it's 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 interesting to to look at dpo i mean it's obviously a monster of the week story but at the same time it it continues a lot of the sort of visual innovations that the show i think has been rightly getting you know was rightly getting yeah. noticed for uh, you know, this is the third season of the show. It was uh, becoming a mass hit, as we've talked about. The you know probably the budget was increased this season. Yeah, the show always looked good. I think that what strikes me about DPO in particular is uh, how cinematic the yeah. directing is getting. And you know, if you look at the opening sequence of this episode, you know, with the crane shots yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the long takes and the you know the the kind of like environments that they're shooting in with the the darkened arcade, you know that yeah. that opening scene is something that is much more ambitious on a visual level than I think we've seen from the Exile X Files before. And the entire episode is, I think, much more visually ambitious than we've seen before. This, you know, the X-Files always got... But yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose is also more visually ambitious than perhaps the show has been in the past. Particularly the title sequence. But yeah, yeah. they're doing a lot of these. Yeah. And and I think it's it's an interesting place to start because it really does indicate to me that the writing of the show is... Or I guess the, the the visual look of the show is sort of catching up to the writing at this point. Like DPO, on the one hand, is a just you know monster of the week story. It's a fine episode. It's it's well stupid written. in its way, but in a in a in a in a fun way. Like uh, like right. It's there is something very B movie about it. But there's a lot of I think. The, the the ways in which the show is using its setting and the ways in which the show is using these random guest stars of the week, they're they're not really they're not really people anymore mm. in a way, if you know what I mean. Like I think that the I mean you know, we'll talk about the fact that it's Jack Black and Giovanni <laughs> Rubisi, but you know, his mother, for example. Yeah. Um and, and the ways in which he's interacting with her are are extremely interesting on the level of these are more of archetypal sort of you know working yeah. ass uh, rednecks to to I mean I, you know to to borrow a term and 
the show is sort of commenting on that kind of thing yeah. at the same, like, I mean, the line that she says, uh, uh, you know, he asked her why she's watching uh, Jerry Springer yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever it is. And, you know, if you needed a, 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 if you needed a sort of visual cue that this was 1996, <laughs> there you go. Um, you know, she says, well, because it's on TV. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And doesn't she say like, you're not on TV or something like that? Like the, yeah, these are people go, it, it, it's X-Files is dealing with, uh, a lot of the problems of America incarnated in these, you know, monsters. And this is a monster born from just a burnout, not intelligent guy who's going nowhere in his life. Yeah. 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 And, and, and even if he th- gets, I mean, I, I, I think the episode makes the point, even if this guy were to get power, he won't, he wouldn't know what to do with it and he'd destroy itself. Like it's a very, it's a sadness, you know, this is a, you know, this is alcoholism burning himself out in a kind of way thing. Well, that yeah, that's exactly what it is because I think that that obviously the the power that he has in this episode uh, to control lightning or to control electricity yeah. or, or whatever um, is obviously you know supposed to be some sort of uh, you know allegory for the fact that he wouldn't really know what to do with um, you know actually being like a successful person in the real world mm-hmm. or something. But then also the question is like what what does success look like, right? Yeah. And. Uh, I think it's it's interesting to compare an episode like this with the mythology or alien conspiracy episodes because, you know, what we have there is really um, what I'm noticing, especially with, with this episode, is that the X-Files is really interested in saying that the government is is really focused on, uh, you know, covering up the the reality of, of extra, the existence of extraterrestrial life. You know, we don't really have a good understanding of why they're doing that. We also kind of have these glimpses that it's not just the government that's doing this. It's other shadowy organizations. But at the same time, you look at an episode like this and you say, okay, well, here is a town in Oklahoma. I think this is taking place in. Uh, You know, these are people that don't have a lot of money. These are people that don't have a lot of options. And, you know, I'm not trying to read too much into it because I don't think that this is really well supported by the show. But to to some degree... It, it's interesting that the show is very interested in uh, kind of this travelogue of different American experiences yeah. in, in a strange way. And and what this episode in particular is is saying about that. It's a show about subcultures in a lot of ways. And I think we see, you know, Clyde Bruckman is about, you know, a psychic kind of subculture. Um, Humbug is about this, you know, car- freak show carny su- subculture. I think – the episodes that I tend to like more are doing this. Here's this weird pocket of America that you never go into, and it's kind of fucked up in its way. Yeah, because I mean, well, let's let's talk about the fact that that it's Jack Black and Giovanni Ribisi then, because yeah, the, and, th- those were not recognizable names or, or faces in 1996. Obviously, no. I looked up there. Uh, I, I think Ribisi was a little. I don't remember if this is when he was like on Friends and stuff, but like Jack Black certainly was no one. He'd had like a couple of similar guest spots at this point, and I, it's hard to watch this episode without knowing that again, Jack Black especially are going to go on to be huge. They'll be household names, you know, and. Rabisi never got as popular, but he was in a bunch of movies. He's in Lost in Translation and all of that. It's it's actually kind of funny. The the week that we are doing these episodes, we are starting uh, the uh, on Trek about. We're starting the Voyager episode. Uh, Future's End is it called? Yeah, yeah. Which has a very young Sarah Silverman when she was again just taking random gigs, and uh, it's very again it's very funny how 
both episodes have this very, in a way, outside presence retroactively, just because of who we know them to be. Um, interestingly enough, uh, our July epi- patron episode is, we did a series on the Golden Girls, and I continued uh, watching it afterwards uh, because it's one of my favorite shows. Do you remember the episode where Blanche is in college and her professor propositions her for an A? Yeah. Do you remember who that professor is? No, it's I Deep don't think Throat. So. Oh, right. It's hilarious watching that. Yeah, just in, in like, because I hadn't seen the X-Files the last time I saw it. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> this is one of the, I'm finding a joys of watching, you know, doing television shows of this era because you recognize everybody, but. It's very true, yeah. And, I mean, yeah. you know, on the one hand, I, I, you know, you can kind of see why Jack Black became, yeah. uh, you know, very famous. And you can kind of see why Giovanni Ribisi became less famous, let's say. Yeah, uh, but you can see both of them acting, you know, in this episode. Yes. I, I think that Giovanni Ribisi, uh, he's hewing a little too closely to sort of like a blank stare mm-hmm. indicating some sort of mental, you know, disorder kind of thing, which I don't know if that really works that well. We'll definitely talk about the uh, the subplot or, or the driving force of, of what he's doing yeah. um, as this like weird stalkerish uh, obsession with his old teacher. Yeah. And and sort of I don't know, because I think that I mean, haha, he's a burnout and he controls electricity. But I want to talk about the structure of this episode, because the monster of the week yeah. stories that we've seen in the past two seasons more often than not um have not spent i think a great deal of time outside of Mulder and scully and the episodes that do that are less successful because it feels like Mulder and scully are not yeah. actors in their own show i mean i'm thinking back to something like the honda verlitz or um space from the yeah, first yeah, yeah. season and this episode also i think doesn't really feature Mulder and Scully doing a whole lot. They're always kind of one step behind. But the show is kind of, I think, figuring out that one of the reasons why people watch this show is for the monster of the week. And yeah. we spend a lot of time with the Giovanni Ribisi character this week. And we spend, I think, a comparatively less amount of time with Mulder and Scully. And they're always one step behind in their investigation. But at the same time, that's kind of an interesting yeah. choice. And I also think that that is that becomes more of a uh, structure that the show used to going forward. And I, but I also feel like they actually do investigate. I mean, in, in some ways, this this fellow is so dumb that they catch him really quickly. Uh, it's the, the if their investigation is stalled, it's because of outside forces. In other words, they need to realize that this is a guy who controls electricity. All right, give you know, I'll give them a pass for not immediately come to, coming to that conclusion or later on when the chef, sheriff releases him, uh things like that. I but it does feel like they actually are investigating. They are doing what they're supposed to be doing even if it's sh- sure the plot is not a direct result of their actions. It is progressing on its own, but And I think that is part of the point. Again, this guy is not somebody who is going to be able to wield his power. He's going to become drunk on it, and it's going to wield him. And so in a way, Mulder and Scully stopping him is irrelevant. He's going to stop himself before long, as he does. Which, yeah, which which is exactly kind of what happens. I mean, Mulder and Scully figure it out 
I think fairly quickly what's going on and 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 you know for the first 25 or 30 minutes of the episode essentially it's them I think really kind of gathering enough evidence that yeah. they can get him. I mean they know pretty quickly. Like Mulder's like yeah, it's that guy. Yeah, they, they they and did the, the the guy was playing at a machine that this one guy did, you know, played over and over. He was obviously there. He obviously saw something. He's saying he saw nothing. He's the guy. Like that yeah, it's it's that easy. Right. And then so they know their guy, they just have to get get enough evidence to 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 get him yeah. essentially. And they do get him and then the sheriff lets him go and, and the rest of the episode happens sort of by happenstance, I think. But what what is what is interesting about it to me though is is kind of the the ways in which this episode in particular plays around with the idea of uh you know Mulder and Scully coming in as the experts who are not uh they're not really being condescending i don't think but the sheriff um kind of treats them that way in a sense like they're coming in and they're he's like well you really don't know what you're talking about stop telling me what you're doing because i don't care you don't know anything here's all this information about lightning (laughs) you know and and of course then he dies but uh (laughs) which he has to because it's a monster episode but it's just kind of strange to me that the show is starting to i don't know the show is is making the guest stars really weird that's like the only thing i can really but the show is always made the guest stars again i i keep talking about how all of the texts that they meet they may not be weird but they all have characters i remember a lot of them they they're not just a random anybody could say these lines they think of crafting a character and so i think the guest stars are getting weird because the show has a little more confidence to go like okay well they're liking this so we can go even a little further we can make and you know again we are going to these weird insular pockets where people are going to go very strange um i mean i like the sheriff in a way because he is the biggest red herring in this episode he keeps talking about this oh we have a lightning center and you think okay it's the x-files ultimately it's going to reveal that you know number one i thought that this kid was going to turn out to be a son or something like that or you know this institute is obviously doing some kind of experimentation and he's the result of that and the sheriff is trying to protect that you know him and that turns out to not really be the case here, and I don't know, I thought that was, I kind of liked that, just, again, it was very red herring of it, um, and in a way, the sheriff doing all of these things because he's just kind of an asshole who just doesn't like Mulder and Scully on site makes a little more sense. Yeah, because it's the, and and also that the fact that the sheriff is, is full of himself and is condescending, you know, I think that like, you know, he's like, yeah, I got this figured out. We've got this lightning center and, you know, this, we make lightning here and this just happens because we have more lightning here than any other place in the country and blah, blah, blah. And of course that's kind of true, but I mean, because it works because it's kind of true and it's kind of not true. I mean, I think it Um, is, if you probably do look into the town's history, there probably are an unusual number of deaths from lightning. It's of course at the same time this is not that situation yeah but but at the same time like this episode has a weird a weird perspective on on women that i'm finding Mm. i I need to talk about though because i think back to that first scene in the episode where the sheriff is essentially you know verbally berating uh, scully and Mulder, just kind of standing there and, and not doing anything um and then we have this whole entire subplot or maybe it's not even a subplot maybe it is the driving force of the episode that the giovanni rabisi character 
uh, is is in love with his old teacher and he is essentially stalking her and creeping her the fuck out and yes of course because he's creepy as hell um and is trying to get her uh but but what is what are they really doing with that like what are they saying about that and i you know i don't know yeah i mean I appreciate that this is not yet another story in which Scully is damseled and that they – I mean the teacher's motivations kind of make sense. You know, She tells Scully to sit down and I'll go with him. It, it does make sense on a level of she may not want to be with this guy. This guy is creeping her the hell out. But at the same time, he was her student and she does feel sorry for him and she doesn't want to see him gunned down you know, by an FBI agent in a hospital. Like that, that of all the fates that she wants for him, that, that is the worst. And as soon as she gets the opportunity to escape, she takes it. Um, I mean, on those levels, I would say they do the best they can with that plot. At the same time, watching this in 2017, this is a plot that we go to a lot. I mean, there's only, I mean, we all know that you know, stalking women is wrong, and so to... Do we? Well, you and I know that stalking women is wrong. Wrong. Trump voters don't know that, but um, the... Trump doesn't know that, but uh, there is a time to which, and this is some of the, for example, a lot of the crit on Game of Thrones focuses on this. It's one thing to depict to, to something and say this is bad, but when you're doing it over and over and that's kind of your default plot of oh, we're going to have a get woman get kidnapped by the monster of the week because he's in love with her. It's give me a different story here. Yeah, because I, I think there's a couple things there, which which I totally think you're you're correct in your analysis of that. But, you know, the two things that, that, that kind of leap to mind to, for me are. You know, of course, number one, this was read very differently, I think, in 1996 than it is now. Uh, You know, a a white dude wrote this episode. Assumedly, he's straight. I mean, I don't really know anything about him, but I'm assuming he is because, you know, most most people are. Um, And and, you know, it it was probably less of a cliched storyline or had less real world um implications than it does now i think that you know with the rise of things like the men men's rights activist movement Mm. and you know all this talk of of social justice warriors and things like that and you know we do have to be careful to talk about things like that as well because we live on the internet and (laughs) still a lot of people don't so how much of this is like spill over into the real world i don't know like you know, if I talked to my mother and said, you know what a social justice warrior is, would she know? I, I don't know if she would. I, I was going to um, say, I, I, it's funny. I once a few years ago asked my mom, you know, based on some stuff I was reading, like, do you feel afraid of men? Like, are, are you scared of men? And she laughed. Like, that, that was the, you know, the reaction. I'm like, this is a woman who was in, you know, Brooklyn in the 1970s, and she doesn't have that fear of men. Like, was she just very, very lucky or... You know, or I, I, I can't even begin to. But yeah, I, I, I guess the point is that you know, yes, there, might, there is. I think everybody can agree that stalking is bad, but I don't know how. I don't know. I don't know where I'm. Going I think. Th- I think if you ask people if stalking is bad, they would yeah. say yes. But I think the definition of what stalking mm. is is probably very different from person to person and from from men and women generally. True, and you and, get the sense in this particular set. Uh, situation in the episode uh certainly she the teacher agrees that at some point this turned a corner probably around the time that he got lightning powers but 
I think if you asked her if he had gotten no lightning powers, would anything have come of this, she would have said no. He was just, you know, he's not the first kid in her class to get a crush on her and they eventually grow out of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I, I think that if you if you really track the the character, I mean, I didn't write his name. Darren, I think his name is. Sure. I think. Yeah, Darren Oswald. Yeah, DPO. Darren P. Oswald. Yep, exactly. Um, that, hey, title. Uh, uh that if you really track his character and what is going on here, I think that's why it does read so differently in 2017, because essentially what we have here is, uh, you know, a guy who doesn't really have much success with with women. Uh, his mother even says as much. Yeah. Right. He, he's graduated from high school. He still lives with his mother. Um, he, he really has no prospects. It doesn't seem like, um, you know, he has this job at the garage that his reading ed teacher got him. Um, so he didn't even really have anything to do with that. Yeah. Uh, the implication is that this is perhaps not the most intelligent person. No. Um, not that that really matters that much, but just in terms of, of where the episode is going. Well, yeah. He's know. got this friend. He drinks a lot. You know, I don't think it's incidental that like almost every time we see him, he's got a beer in his hand. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, he's a burnout essentially, right? And he doesn't do anything. And he's not uh, someone who would be a, a socially... Uh, you know, wh- why would anybody be in a relationship with him or marry him, right? Like, there's yeah. no real reason why anybody would do that. And so the the, the implication really is that, um, you know, he is being uh, that that the 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 stalking of the reading ed teacher is more of a, I guess, symptom of the yeah. socioeconomic forces that have forced this guy into this position than anything else. But I think that that's a problematic thing for the episode to be saying. Yeah, I mean, it's... So you keep going back to the conversation when uh, the Jack Black character, who I'm not... I, I, I'm not over-reading. I'm fairly sure that Jack Black, Jack Black is playing the character as if he's in love with Giovanni Ribisi. And I, I... I could see that. Yeah, I mean, there's that one scene where he's saying, listen, man, let's go to Vegas... You know, we'll win at the slots, we'll have so much money, and we can do whatever we want. And, I mean, I said, like, Giovanni Ribisi's character doesn't know what to do with this power. Jack Blacks has this very simple, obvious plan of just, we're going to win a bunch of money, and and we'll go off. And, yes, that is a little pie in the sky, but restrain himself, win a few grand, you know, win $10,000, you have one lucky night at a casino, never do it again, and then you've got you know, housing for the next few years. Uh, that That's the easiest thing you can do. Um, the fact that Jack Black seems like he would be much more responsible with this power in a way. He wouldn't use it to... Uh, but the fact that Jared Oswald, all he can think of to do with this is, well, I'm going to get my old remedial reading teacher to fall in love with me. Again, it's, it is intending to say a lot about this character. He has fallen into this cliche because that's the only weird place he can fall into. I mean... Yeah. I think a lot, you know, we're talking we're talking about internet culture. I think there is a, a real degree with, to which a lot of people who fall into the quote-unquote alt-right is just because that's the gutter right now. You know, people are going to fall into the gutter and unfortunately we haven't created better gutters for them in a way. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Cuz you know, you know, not not to go too far afield, but but there is a lot of you know, sociological research and and thought being given to the diminished role of white men mm-hmm. in society, essentially, and what that means for 
you know, their prospects. And, and, you know, certainly I think you can say that the, the MRA stuff is kind of a backlash against yeah. that and things like that. I am certainly not a defender of any of that. I don't think that that's no, right. But, uh, but, but I think that we do have to be honest with, with, you know, where, where these kind of desires are coming from. And, you know, to be fair, uh, Trump did win the election by the rules of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So something's going on here that we need to <laughs> we, yeah. we need to examine. Well, and and I it it's interesting to me that like, you know, a random episode of the X Files from nineteen ninety six lends itself to this kind of analysis. Yeah, but I mean like that's the typical uh reason that people become white supremacists, right? It's not because you, 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 you white supremacists will not recruit through, you know, we're gonna kill everybody kind of a thing. It's it's you find a guy like Darren Oswald in this episode and saying, you know, you're poor, you have no prospects, nothing's happening, there's no money for you, there's no jobs, you know why that is, and they will have all of these very elaborate reasons, you know, and it's because, well, we're giving, you know, we're going to give black people jobs who don't even deserve it, you know, just because of affirmative yeah. action, or, you know, women are going to have to get, you know, we're going to have a quota of women, you know, they're taking this from you, you don't even have anything, the reason you don't have anything is because of this, and... A guy like Darren Oswald, who is desperate and lonely and really doesn't have any prospects, has no has no structure for how to begin to get prospects. It's not as if he has it's not as if his mother is teaching him how to talk to women, for example, or or anything like that. It's not like he has had healthy relationships. He probably doesn't have any healthy relationships, and it's not incidental that. I mean, he is a s- child of a single mother. It's not – do you know what I mean? Like I, I think that's yeah. adding to this now. Certainly, obviously, in 96, being a single parent is very different than it is now in terms of – but I'm sure I, – I feel like that is a very deliberate part on the episode's – part of the episode. Yeah, I think so because this episode would read very differently if we did not have that glimpse into his home life. Yeah. And that that that's I think where the real uh power that the X-Files kind of changing up its structure a little bit and saying, you know what, we're going to delve a little bit more into the lives mm. of of these monster of the week stories. And and I think that's going to be kind of fertile ground for the show to continue to do because it is going to allow the show yeah. to to go a little bit deeper. Uh, than than perhaps it has in the past. Yeah, there is a very different episode than if we had, for example, the two of them are living upstairs in the arcade and they have their own apartment. That's a very different episode. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, I think we've said all we can say about DPO, um, but before we move on to our next episode, I just want to take a few seconds to to remind all of you that tuning in is listener-supported. Uh, if you have a little bit of extra money that you would like to give us, it would be very much appreciated. Uh, $1, $2, $5 a month. Uh, we'll get you the patron specials. Like Richard mentioned, the Golden Girls, very good. Uh, we've got a couple other. Well, actually, no, we've got a few now. I think there's like 18 of them or something. I don't know. Go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and give now. All right, let's talk about Clyde Bruckman's final repose, which I think you can probably see is... Hmm. Maybe the first unabashed, not classic episode of the X-Files, but one of those episodes of television that make those lists. Like, Mm. this is one of the best episodes of television ever kind of thing. See, watching this episode, I get this. You said this sometimes when we've done, uh, like, we did a patron special on, you know, five essential Star Trek episodes, and you said about a couple, this is one of those outside episodes that you say this about, for example, in The Pale Moonlight. Like, you can't necessarily judge 
the show based on this episode because it is so different and weird. I'm getting the sense that even though – I mean if you – if if the X-Files were everything up till this moment, I feel like Clive Ruckman would be one of those episodes. But I'm getting the sense that this is a level that it's going to hit a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I was I I usually read um, the uh, AV Club reviews of the X Files after we record every week, just to kind of like get a sense of what other critics are saying about these episodes. And it's always interesting to see like when they think an episode is really good that we thought was really terrible, or vice versa. Yeah, but uh, yeah, like um, uh, Todd Vanderwerf, who used to write for the AV Club, and I think he's now over at Vox. Uh, he has a podcast as well, which I listen to sometimes. Uh, you know, he basically said in one of his write-ups of the X Files that this is the third season of the X Files is is one of the best seasons of television ever made. Mm. Um, which I would agree. I with. mean, so I, far I every episode has been excellent. Yeah, yeah, and I I think that this again this is really where you see the X Files. I think going beyond like if you look at this show on an objective level and you say here is a science fiction procedural about aliens <laughs> and then you get an episode like Clyde Bruckman's final repose like on the one hand this episode should not exist this is hmm. so um be above and beyond what anybody could have ever envisioned for the X-Files if you just watch like the first season I mean it it's it's amazing how how uh, uh, revelatory this episode is. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I've seen it a lot. Like, you've obviously this is your first time seeing it, so uh, well, maybe I, maybe I'm overselling it. But what what is well, your reaction to it? Seeing this episode for the first time. I mean, I liked this very much. I'm not sure if I would. I mean, this was written by the same guy who wrote Humbug, right? And I think I liked Humbug more. Oddly enough, I can I can I can but see that. At, I, I, but which is not which is not to say like you know if Humbug was you know fifty points, this is forty five points, kind of a thing. I I think that this episode is more subtle than Humbug. Oh yeah, I will and, agree with that. And I think that this is an episode of the show that rewards multiple viewings. Okay. In a way that Humbug does not. Like, Humbug is still always very good, and I still always have a great time watching Humbug. But this episode in particular um, is doing a lot yeah. of very interesting things with the structure of the X-Files as a show. And and with a lot of the characterizations of Mulder and Scully that have come in, yeah. in, in these two seasons. And there's a lot of different stuff that this episode kind of indicates for like what comes later that it's hard to talk about, like in, uh, uh, in isolation from, from everything else. Um, you know, I think that this is an episode again, that once you watch it more and more, you yeah, get more and that. more out of. Yeah. I could definitely see that. And especially because it's talking about, you know, telling the future, for example. So I, I do get the sense that there is a little more crafted in terms of foreshadowing and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, let's talk about that for a minute, because of course this entire episode hinges on the idea that, uh, you know, this character, Clyde Bruckman, uh, who's, I don't know if they ever actually say his name in the episode. Do they? They I do. Don't yeah, yeah, yeah. They do. Okay. Um, and it really bothers me. I don't know why on Hulu, it just has the name of the episode as Clyde Bruckman. I don't yeah. know why. And it just bothers me for some reason. Um, well, because that's such but, a fucking poetic title like that. It is. Just, yeah. just, I mean, if you even look at a list of episode titles, I think you can tell that this is going to be a hell of an episode. Yeah. There's an episode much later in the third season called Jose Chung's from outer space. <laughs> uh, 
and I, I which uh, features um, uh, what is his name? Uh, I don't remember his name, but but anyway, you'll you'll find out about that episode okay. later. Uh, that uh, this episode is it's so um, I think it, what it, what it's really doing is you know Darren Morgan is obviously someone who was really interested in commenting on the structure of the X Files mm-hmm. and and making fun of it. Really, you know, I think that he likes the show, oh, yeah. but I think that he thinks there are a lot of things about the show that are that are fucking ridiculous and i mean he has a joke in this episode about Mulder's name um you know he's he's saying things about the sort of futility of like life essentially i mean you know clyde bruckman has that great line in the episode uh where he's talking to someone and he says well why do we do anything he's like "I, i don't know uh why why do we who knows everything is is written we can't change anything and then of course at the very end of the episode something changes yeah so there there's a fatalistic element to this episode which at first makes it seem like this is the reality of the situation but then of course it's revealed that that's really just this character clyde bruckman's outlook on life more than anything else it's a refutation of that idea that which i would say connects to the project of the x-files as a whole i mean clive bruckman is the idea that you can't do anything we are victims of fate of forces that are larger than us and scully certainly doesn't seem to believe that and Mulder escapes the death that Bruckman foretells for him at one point and you know with the pie and so it is very much a sense of there are some things that you can't change but you know Clive Bruckman is always going to kill himself at the end he's he knows that and he's going to do that but he's made the choice to do that in the way and Mulder and Scully are you know meanwhile Mulder and Scully are dealing with this vast government conspiracy forces beyond their control things that are set into motion that Nobody can stop, and yet they still feel that it is their responsibility to to try. And again, that the, their refutation of fate in this episode is is seems to me a metonym of their refutation of other things. Yeah, no, I actually think that's a really good point because you know what that makes me think is Clyde Bruckman has constructed his life in such a way to really validate his his opinion of how the world works in a strange way. I mean, this is a man who, you know, he looks like he's in his late fifties, early sixties, you know, probably drinks a lot. He's living in a small studio apartment, uh, selling life insurance, not making a lot of money, no romantic prospects, you know, no, there's no women in his life. Yeah. Right. He, he says, oh, you know, why is everybody having sex except me? And, and um, interestingly enough, you know, compare him to Darren, Darren Oswald, who is in a lot of ways the same thing. I mean, you know, Clive Bruckman may be an adult Darren Oswald, except somebody who's able to sort of sell insurance. Yeah, yeah. Except turning but into there... violence, he's turned into – I mean, he's – Darren Oswald choose to, ha, externalizes his rage on everybody around him. Uh Clive Ruckman internalizes it onto himself. Yes, I think so, because, you know, Clive Bruckman is 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 saying all of the time that, you know, fate is unchangeable yeah. and the, the future is is written and we can't do anything about it, which, of course, is not the case. And this, uh, this I think this entire episode is arguing the exact opposite of that. But at the same time, you you can see the glimmers in his life that he doesn't want that to be true because he keeps playing the lotto. 
and well he obviously seems to know that he's never going to win but there that that's an indication to me that he wants things to be different than they are see and that see i i actually see the complete opposite read of that i think he's keeps playing the lotto to prove that he can't has no control over anything in other words if he were really psychic if he could really change the future he'd buy a lotto ticket and he'd win and he'd get out of a situation so see i never win the lottery i'm not psychic i can't do anything we are fucked i mean that that seems to me the you know he he's i think he's angry and upset when he loses the lottery but just because but it's a it's something horrible he's doing to himself to, again to prove him to to bring himself down even more. Yeah, I mean, I can certainly see that, and and you know his his stated power is that he can see how people are going to yeah. die, which frankly sounds horrible, of course. Oh yeah, but but also, what is the point of that? Like, what does that really do for him? Yeah. And. You know, the fact that he sells life insurance, I think, is just kind of like a grim <laughs> joke that the episode is making. I don't know yeah. that there's anything, you know, more more deep about it than that. But, you know, maybe exa- I mean, because e- even if he can see the, the fate of everybody who dies, it doesn't help him sell life insurance. I mean, it's not like <laughs> he can. I mean, like that, that. And that's exactly the you know, the, the, the episode even makes that point because he's at that guy's house with his wife and he goes, yeah, you're going to be killed by a drunk driver. Yeah. And the guy's like, you need to get the fuck out of my house. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, this does not help him in his life at all. Yeah. It's like he's trying to at least help them in a way like, listen, you can't avoid death, but at least, you know, we can cushion the blow a bit. And. You know, that's all he can do, really. That's all he's trying to do. And it's so cold and stupid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I also think that, that you know, we, I think we should talk about the stupendous yappy because <laughs> there there's an element to that character, which I find very, very strange, which is that, you know, obviously that is a character. That's the kind of character that Darren Morgan apparently likes to write. You know, he's he's an outsized presence in the episode. He's extremely goofy. He's he's extremely uh, uh, campy, I yeah. think. And and but at the same time he does seem to have at least some psychic abilities. There's, there's a commentary here on, I think the idea that what Mulder and Scully are looking for is, is the truth, right? Mm-hmm. That, that is, that is the stated goal of, of this show. And that is where they want to go at all times. But what, what is really strange about that is that the show never really questions the nature of that truth. And I think this episode does that to some degree, like, you know, Clyde Bruckman is a very, very, mild-mannered, self-effacing, like no one's going to look at him twice on the street kind of guy. Whereas, you know, the stupendous yappy is flamboyant and uh, dresses weirdly and probably wears capes to Kmart. Uh, and, and he has, you know, he's a celebrity. People know about him. You know, the first time we see him, he's being hounded for autographs and people are taking his picture. Uh, but he is not the person who is helping Mulder and Scully get to the truth and the nature of what that truth is changes in the episode. But, you know, at the same time, Mulder and Scully are almost viewed as Clyde Bruckman and not the stupendous yappy, right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. they show up, they show up at this crime scene. The, uh, you know, the police officers are kind of like, yeah, 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 whatever. You're here. That's fine. But we really are waiting for this guy to help us. Yeah. And, Sorry. I, I, I think it's funny that you ultimately initially think they're talking about Mulder. They're like, oh, he's going to come in. He's going to help us. He's so spooky. He's been on TV. And my initial line is, well, Mulder's been on TV. And then, then it's the, that's a fake out. Again, as you say, he's playing with the structure of the X-Files. How many times? have we seen Mulder called in because he's the spooky guy who can figure this out 
Right, right. Because I, I think that one of the things that I appreciate about Darren Morgan's script is that he looks at this as he looks at this as a television show, mm-hmm. but how would people actually act? And, you know, I always come back to that scene where they take Clyde Bruckman to the, to the uh, crime scene and he's like, what the fuck? Can, like, can I see your badges again? <laughs> like, who who are you people? What what do you want yeah. from me? You know, and and I think that that's so great because the X-Files, I think, especially in the third season, I think you see that in DPO as well, is this is a show that is really um, human and is really yeah. having, I think, real, not, well, I shouldn't say realistic, but sort of, I will say realistic. I mean, they, they, this is a show that has a point of view it is creating characters that have points of view. It is creating a world. And yes, the Darren Morgan episodes so far have been very strange. I think that this this episode obviously hues more closely to a, uh, a procedural sort of <clears throat> episode of the X-Files than Humbug did. This is a much less overtly comedic episode of the show. I think Darren Morgan gets... Um, kind of pigeonholed into he was the guy that wrote the comedy episodes of the X-Files, which I don't think is necessarily true because I don't think this episode is funny. It has funny moments, but the humor is used to, you know, as as leavener for the really, really serious moments. In a way, the humor is based on this character, Clive Bruckman, who is uh, not the kind of person that one initially thinks of as having psychic gifts and just how much of a fucking burden they would be for him. But it's his, you know, most of the comedy comes from his kind of ironic comments or whatever. Right. You know, yeah. Because I'm joking I mean, sarcastically in the entire episode. That's the really only funny parts. Which I think is a, you know, that that's an interesting choice, of course, because that's a coping mechanism yeah. that the character has has come up with to deal with the fact that he is burdened with these psychic visions. Yeah. And there's a there's a strange hopefulness that runs throughout this episode, like in a certain way. There's a there there's definitely a fatalistic element to Clyde Bruckman, but there's also a hopefulness, which is that. You know, he has been someone who all throughout his life has been burdened by these visions, apparently hasn't really done anything about them. But now that Mulder and Scully have come into his life, suddenly he has people that like rely on him and are finding him useful. And I I get the impression that he is he continues to help them because he is surprised at how useful that makes him feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. See, because. You almost get the sense he's protesting because he also knows that these people are involved in his own death and it's a weak kind of – again, the sarcasm seems like he's he's the guy in the back of the class making you know jokes and comments the entire time because he's doing terribly in it. You know, he's, he's – he's, he, if he's going to be pulled along by fate, he's going to snark at fate all day uh, even though – but – uh, it's also clear that that's not actually doing anything. That's not actually acting. That's not actually defying your fate. Yeah, because I mean, it's it's a very sad. Episode. Yeah, oh. I mean, this is this is a this is a man who is so broken down by his own psychic. Well, really, not even the psychic abilities, just the the material nature of his own existence that. And the only way that he can really deal with it is a, a sort of an ironic or sarcastic detachment yeah. from his own life that 
you know, it, it's just very, very depressing. Again, you know, I, yeah, <laughs> I see these two characters as, again, these these are two sides of the same coin. And, you know, Darren Oswald, what kind of an end would he have had if he had, had, had not had lightning powers? He would have probably drank himself to death, got into an accident, done something stupid, or shot himself in the end. And that's basically what kind of fate is Clive Bruckman going to have? He's going to... He he takes a bunch of pills and suffocates himself to death. If he doesn't do that, he's going to get liver cancer. You know what I mean? Right. Which, God, he really wanted to die. Didn't yeah. He? he wanted to make sure yes. that he was going to die. Like, I mean, the pills probably would have been enough. But He uh, probably swallowed those pills with some of the scotch he's drinking in the entire episode, too. And, yeah. But let me ask you a question about that, though, because I, I think that, you know, his suicide at the end is obviously uh, supposed to be the, the coda to the episode. Yeah. And, and, you know, Scully's very moved by it. Now Scully has a dog. All right. Huh. But which is also kind of strange because television shows generally don't handle characters having dogs very well. So the fact that Darren Morgan decided to give Scully a dog is, is I think, maybe kind of a fuck you to the fact that now they have to deal with the fact that Scully has a dog, <laughs> uh, especially a character that like travels yeah. to work so much. How the hell is she going to have a dog? Well, at anyway. least her mother lives nearby. So that's true. But Clyde Bruckman committing suicide at the end of the episode. Um, do you think that that was the only way that this character could have ended? Because to me, it almost seems like, he was that that was him finally making a it, it, in a strange way like it it was finally him making a decision mm. about fate while at the same time still letting fate dictate how he was event like the end of his life it's the thing that he can't let go of again darren oswald has this teacher he has this idea of his own death and he's i i it it does get ambiguous to a point of you know, I'm having all of these horrible nightmare visions. My life is terrible. I'm going to kill myself or a genuine psychic vision of that. After a while, it doesn't matter. Clyde Bruckman decided long ago he was going to kill himself as soon as he knew the right time to. And solving yeah. this case is probably the only thing he's going to do in his life at this point. I mean, really, what – where is he going to go from this? Is he going to be – I, I, it's like I don't think the end of the episode would have ended with the amazing Bruckman on TV and I will tell you all your psychic visions and he's found his success. That's not going to happen. He is not. Yeah. He's not the kind of, you know, he, he has nothing. He's Is he going to go back to selling insurance, which he's probably not very good at? Uh, it, 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 so, yeah, really dying in this way is at some point he decided this is the only th way I'm going to go and – I mean, in the, again, the title sequence where he has this vision of, you know, I'm in a field of tulips and I'm rotting. It's the only peaceful scene he really has. He is, he, he really is at the point of the only way I'm going to stop all of this is to die and finally be at rest. Yeah, because that, that really is the only time that, that he gets peace. I mean, yeah. I, he, he seems, right? And what 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 strikes me about all of this, though, and, and where I take that, is this episode more than anything else. Because there, there's that great line in the, in, in the episode where, you know, the stupendous yappy comes in and he's like, he does not feel like he's in control of his own life. And Mulder's yeah. like, yeah, whatever. Like, he's just saying generic, yeah. vague things that are true for everybody. And, you know, Clyde Bruckman, 10 minutes later, does the same thing. But then he... he yeah he owns it and he realizes it and he's like, yeah, he doesn't feel in control of his own life. Like who does. Right. But what, what is interesting to me about that is 
this is an episode about context and this is an episode about the i think almost the tyranny of like raw data in a way Mm. because what you look at is okay clyde bruckman sees a vision of him and scully in bed uh you know she's very moved by what's going on there are tears streaming down his face but that that's information we have no context for that and that's really where the power of this episode comes from, because what gives life its power is context. You can't yeah. look at your life in isolation and say, OK, well, my life is terrible or my life is good. You have to look at it in context. And, you know, there's probably people that have Clyde Bruckman's life that live in a studio apartment that yeah. sell life insurance that are probably very happy. But Clyde Bruckman is not happy because of the context of his life, not because of the material circumstances of his life. In the same way that I think that's why the episode ends the way it does. And it's a very sort of subtle thing that, you know, you can have psychic visions and say, okay, I know you're picking up the phone. Yeah, Scully's picking up the phone, but she's picking up the phone (laughs) to throw it at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean, I keep going back to the title. Again, it's not it's not the death of Clyde Bruckman. It's not Clyde Bruckman's psychic visions. It's his final repose. It's that sense of finally being at rest. That's the, again, if they'd called it the death of Clyde Bruckman, it would be about the same exact thing. But again, it's about his final restfulness and his final, you know, I mean, determines, but yeah, I guess, I mean, it's, I'm not sure in the scene where he's talking to, Scully, oh, we end up in bed together. You're holding my hand. It's beautiful. And, you know, she has that, well, there's hits, there's misses, and there's misses. And, uh, you know, I I don't know if he had, he do you get the sense that he knew enough to, you know, he could have said, oh, like, we're not having sex. Obviously, we're not having sex. I'm dead, and you're feeling bad about that. Like, uh, after a while, he kind of I mean, I get the sense from that scene, it doesn't matter. It's going to happen either way. She's not, she's more, in a way, amused by how unlikely and ridiculous, you know, the thought of them sleeping together are. So, and she's going to find out anyway. What does it really, what is it going to do for her to know the true circumstances beforehand? You know, I I don't know because, you know, I, I, I keep coming back to the idea again that this episode is all about. the power of context and the necessity for context Mm. because there are now that i'm thinking about it in those terms there are so many scenes that rely on you know misinterpretations or or kind of you know the the scene where uh Mulder thinks that that clyde bruckman is smiling when actually he's wincing because there's a dead body under the car uh you know the the phone thing the, the the vision of him in bed with with scully and and those those elements of his characterization and those kind of pieces of information are are ways in which I think this episode is trying to tell us that, um, you know, people construct their own realities, but they're, we should not give them any more power than they need. You know, the entire idea of fate is this this kind of idea of, of almost a, a negation of context in a way. And the episode is very much arguing that 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 is not uh, uh, what the actual truth of of the situation is. I'm curious as to speaking of context, uh, how much of so, so he first of all, Clive Ruckman makes this joke that Mulder's gonna this implication that Mulder will die of autoerotic asphyxiation or whatever. Again, yes. and, and it is possible that he's just you know he he's. He reads Mulder well enough to know that, you know, this is 
he has kind of a pervy home life, and so, you know, he's just going to make a little dig. But more significantly is this when Scully asks and he says, you don't. Knowing that there is something up with Scully and aliens, I have no idea what where we're going with that. But uh, just as you said, to, to give a character a dog, I mean, that's the real ballsy move there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, because at some point Scully, I don't know, let's say she disappears and gets put into cryonic suspension and the poor dog is yeah. there for the rest of her. <laughs> yeah, but like what's going to, you know, what's what does that mean? You know, you won't die, you know. We'll find. I, I don't. I don't know. And I and I think that um, maybe it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Right. Like maybe that just means that for whatever reason, Bruckman can't see Scully's fate. I, and I mean, uh, to tell a Catholic you will not die is if has some very particular theological uh, implications and symbol symbolism to it. So, you know, in a way, I, that is a very – in context, that's a very charged phrase to say to Scully. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. All right, well, I think that's it for this episode of Tuning In. If you have any thoughts on either of the episodes we just talked about, DPO or Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, please leave a comment at tuninginshow.com. As we said before, Tuning In is listener-supported. Please go to patreon.com slash trekaboutshow and give now. It also supports our other podcast, Trekabout. As Richard said, we talk about the episodes this week, Sacred Ground and Future's End, which features a young Sarah Silverman in a not insignificant supporting role. <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tuning In Show is there. Tuning In Show is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us an iTunes slash Apple podcast review for tuning in. I thought you were going to say, please Next. leave us an apple pie. And I was like, yes. I'll, I'll take an apple pie. Just don't, not banana cream. I'm not a fan of banana cream pie. I like coconut custard. That's okay. I'm all right with that. But but apple is the best. I think fruit pies are generally the best pies. No. Unless you're talking about a chocolate cream that's, pie. That's maybe the best. Yeah, yeah. Chocolate silk mousse pie. Uh, oh, that sounds good. With like those like curly fudgy shaves. All right. Well, next week we're going to be talking about the list and too shy. Mac, why do you?